Hey guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 198. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. So we do have a question and answer episode coming up for you once again today. So Jack, I'd love to hear your response to this first question. It says, what should you do if you overshoot your calories post-show for a number of weeks and gain an excessive amount of weight? Yeah, well, first of all, sorry to hear that you're in that situation. And I think probably the, one of the worst things to do would be to, to try and like lose that weight immediately and, and be reactive to it because I think at that point you're potentially increasing your risk of setting yourself up for a, for a binge restrict cycle where as soon as you start to restrict yourself again by, by dieting and attempting to lose that weight, it then sort of invigorates all those cues that cause you to overeat in the first place. And then the same sort of cycle occurs. And once you experience those cues again, uh, you overeat again, and then, then you restrict, and then you overeat and restrict, which is the binge restrict cycle. And even if you aren't binging per se, like you're, you're overeating, which is causing you to, to lose the weight. And I think it doesn't have to be a fair s- circumstance either. Like post-show, it's, it's not about fairness. And I think some people, the reason I bring this up is maybe because some people think, oh, it's, it's not fair that I am post-show and I can't relax completely with my food. Or it's not fair that I'm still only eating 2,000 calories post-show and I see other people eating like 2,500 or maybe 3,000 calories. And we just have to kind of accept that we're all different. And like the post-show is just a part of bodybuilding. It's one of the phases of bodybuilding. It has to be executed correctly. Otherwise, people end up with either a disordered relationship with food or they end up with an, a non-ideal body composition in the early phases of the off-season. So I think really... I would enter maintenance and one positive thing to gain from maybe overshooting your targets and gaining gaining some weight in the like gaining weight too quickly in the recovery period is that weight gain is one of the most important things to recover from your bodybuilding competition assuming you've achieved a, quite a lean composition and I think we also have to bear in mind that a lot of weight like for the question asker is subjective. I don't I don't know who asked the question but for example, someone maybe might weigh 70 kilos on stage and they've gained three kilos in a week post-show. Yeah, in the context of everyday life, that's a decent amount of weight to gain in, in a week. But three kilos in a week post-show is is neither here nor there. Like that's very, very, very manageable because you, you just slow down your rate of gain from there or, or into maintenance. I would want someone to gain more weight than that anyway. Maybe not in a week, but in, in, in the weeks to come, uh, assuming they've achieved good conditioning. So yeah, I would, to summarize my thoughts, like I would kind of enter maintenance, try and build your calories up as high as you can at maintenance because you will continue to recover at that higher body weight and there should be some positive metabolic adaptation which will allow you to increase your intake and then essentially your body composition will change over time slightly. And then ideally, if you have room to spare, like eventually get into a surplus for your off-season or if you've really exceeded your, your uh, composition by that much and you, tip, you, you genuinely are maybe in the high teens as a male for, for body composition, then that would mean that you'd just have to sit at maintenance for quite a long time 
and then diet back down. We're talking about months later mm. though. Yeah, I think there's so much to unpack there. I really like how you mentioned about how post-show, it is still really important to not just throw up your hands and say, oh, why can't I just be free? You know, why can't I just eat whatever I want? And why can't I just like train one or two times per week? Those sort of things, right? I, I hear a lot of people say, why can't I just be normal? Or I just want to be normal which I think probably stems from people who maybe just enter into a comp prep almost prematurely and maybe didn't live the bodybuilding lifestyle prior. So their idea of normality maybe would be training pretty infrequently, kind of eating pretty blase, whatever you want, whenever you want and whatever you want in terms of quantities, that would be their normality. But for people who live the bodybuilding lifestyle, even when you step off stage, you go back to the same habits and behaviors and routines that you were displaying prior to actually officially entering to the comp prep. So I think it is really important that even when you step off stage for the last time during your season, you don't throw up your hands and say, okay, well that's done. <laughs> like you still have to continue to show a decently high level of discipline and most importantly, self-respect to yourself so that you can recover adequately so that you can have a really successful recovery phase, post-show period, then that bleeds into your improvement season. And then that bleeds into your pre-prep and that bleeds into your next competition season so that it's the most enjoyable and successful long-term. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I think that we've, we've coached quite a few people through their recovery phase now. Mm. And yeah, the, the, the most successful individuals are able to have that balance between sticking to their usual routine and also incorporating more flexibility that they would have during prep mm. and being able to just show that willpower when it comes to food quantities and food consumption and granted it, it is very difficult like your body is literally kind of screaming at you to have more mm. and at the end of the day sometimes it does come down to to willpower and being able to to say no to that and it is a finite period because again like that's the whole point of the recovery is those hunger hormones, leptin and grayling normalizing themselves and also your psychology around food, uh, more so normalizing itself as well. But normal isn't necessarily good either. Like the, the average person in, in the Western world is overweight or obese. Mm. So do we really want to be normal? Yeah. <laughs> do you really want to die at the age of 65 when you could live to be over 90 years old? You know what I mean? And live mm. a much higher quality of life. Yeah, but I, I understand what people are saying. Like, I'm mm. just taking them too literally. Yeah. <laughs> but things happen. We have to accept that. And it's happened for you and I with clients that we've worked with, despite our absolute best mm -hmm. intentions to prepare them, things do happen. So that's the case of how do we address that? What do you do when, despite having a plan in place, trying to set someone self up psychologically and physically to have a really good post-show period, what happens if their mindset slips and their behaviors slip and they don't necessarily display that sort of identity that they did in a prep? It almost goes completely a 180. What do you do when someone does start to gain weight at a really, really fast rate and they probably exceed that five to 10% above your stage weight within that first one to two months post-show? Let's say they far exceed that. What do you do when someone excessively gains weight post-show? 
I personally think that you shouldn't necessarily address it from a case of, okay, what's happened? You should more so address it from a case of what's the root cause of why this happened? Because if you were to just address it first foremost, you'd say, okay, you've gained weight. We know how to lose weight. We should chuck you back into a calorie deficit and lose that weight. I don't think that's actually addressing the root cause because if you do that, which can be very tempting for some people, I've you know had people three or four weeks post-show who unfortunately they do gain quite an excessive amount of weight and then they are very tempted to be like, I just wanna go back into a dieting phase. I feel really uncomfortable. You know, If I could just get myself back down to a point and redeem myself, then start building back up again. It's tempting and I totally understand the desire to do that. But one, they've already demonstrated to themselves, most importantly, that they are not in the right headspace to enter back into a diet. And also their body is in a very fragile and sensitive position, and it's still trying to recover from the chronic dieting period prior. So if you try to get back into a calorie deficit after already gaining a pretty excessive amount of weight, your body is gonna fight you like a mofo. <laughs> and also, because this happened, it goes to show that psychologically, you're, you're not quite there. You can't quite handle that sort of dieting period and the recovery period post. So I think that people are more so setting themselves up likely to enter into a relapse sort of phase. And they're probably going to have more relapses in the future. And like you said, entering into that binge restrict cycle, which can be really, really unpleasant and it can drag on. So mm. I think that you need to address why did this happen? Why did this happen post-show? Is it the case of after you stepped off stage, you felt like you were no longer goal-driven, you were no longer working towards something when you know you were set on this set date and this set competition for so long? Is that the case that you feel like you've lost a sense of direction? Perhaps you maybe you don't have a plan in place in terms of your training and your nutrition and you have a little bit too much flexibility and you don't know what to do with that and that makes you stressed and anxious and maybe you come from a background of when you feel stressed and anxious, a way to cope with that is to eat food because that's just how you cope with your emotions or at least that's how you have in the past. Are you surrounded by a social circle that's very pressuring and everyone just wants you to eat and they want to take you out and you know you are obviously in, indulging in that there's there's a lot of things at play but you need to address why did this happen and then you need to put some protocols in place to say okay what are some things that we can fall back on that made you feel really good in prep in prep you have a pretty set routine in terms of this is what I eat during the day. This is the time that I eat during the day. These are the number of training sessions that I have. This is the time I go to the gym. This is the time I go for my walks. This is the time that I work and see my partner, like all of these things. So really falling back on having a really good routine that serves you. I think that's a humongous thing for people to get them into the right place. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Because it's, it's not like post-show that things are getting harder, like things, we spoke about this a couple of episodes ago, like things are getting easier post-show. Mm. You have more energy and your training session should be more enjoyable and your ultimately your, your appetite and food focus should be coming down uh, as your sort of body fat comes up a little bit. So therefore it should make sticking to those routines even, even easier. And again, I think it mainly comes back to 
uh, either not having those routines in place, maybe even during prep or, or before prep, or just not enough discussion within the prep itself around, okay, what is that post competition period going to look like? And I think maybe potentially also people who have a holiday after prep or not necessarily a holiday going overseas, but like a period of, of downtime where they're like, okay, I'm going to schedule some time off work post-show because I, I need it. But then they've got all this free time. All they're thinking about is finish with my goals and there's all this food around me. Mm. So I think it's good to stick to your, as you said, stick to your usual routine, even from a, a work standpoint as well. Mm-hmm. to keep yourself busy yeah and that's why i think you and i are such massive advocates for first-time competitors work alongside a coach and have them first and foremost guide you through an improvement season for as long as possible and a pre-prep phase before you actually enter into a comp prep because if all you've ever known is prep if you know you've been training at the gym for a few years and you've always aspired to bodybuilders, but you know, you've just kind of been quite flexible with what you do in terms of training and nutrition. But then you're like, I really want to challenge myself. And there's this competition coming up in 20 weeks. I'm going to hire a coach. I'm going to do a prep. You know, I've always wanted to do it, but if all you've ever known is prep and you've never truly lived a bodybuilding lifestyle prior, then that is why entering into the post-show period and then actually entering into an improvement season, that will seem so foreign and so unfamiliar. Whereas for you and myself, the transition between every single phase and also long-term clients that we work with, it's a very smooth transition because we're entering into the known. When we enter into a post-show period or we enter into our improvement season, we're like, we've been here before. We know what we should be doing. Like we really relish in that. We really look forward to it. Mm. So that, that's a huge thing. I think for coaches who are coaching first time competitors, don't just take someone on board when they haven't been living the lifestyle prior. And also for competitors too, really make sure that if you want to do a competition in future, do an improvement season first. Yeah. I think that's huge. Plus, We have to think as well that you and I generally quote that for every month of gaining weight or maintaining weight kind of earns you about a week of dieting. If you are only one month post show and you're like, oh, I'm feeling pretty uncomfortable. I've gained quite a bit of weight, didn't intend to gain this much weight post show in this short time frame. I'm tempted to go back into a diet. Think about that. If you've only actually been in that position for a few weeks or about one month, that's only really going to then kind of grant you about one week in a deficit and how much can you really accomplish in one week in a deficit. And again, it throws you into that sort of negative spiral of a cycle. So, mm. yeah, it's, e- it's easy to say, just don't let it happen. <laughs> but as we both know, things do happen and it's important to know how to address it. But long yep. story short, if you gain an excessive amount of weight, I think that you need to accept that And you just need to say that, okay, like I'm going to take responsibility for this. I understand that there's consequences that come with it, but it's important to try to address why did that happen? You need to hold that body weight. You need to settle into it. You probably will continue to recomp for quite a while. Your health and your metabolism will catch back up to you so that over time you land yourself in a much better position holding that body weight, getting back into routines with training and nutrition, good quality sleep, and most importantly, your mindset. And then down the line, when it's actually been quite a few months, 
then you can say, okay, I'm really in the position now to then enter into a brief dieting phase and then continue through your improvement season. Are you interested in optimizing your nutrition, training, or physique? If so, head on over to our website and explore our coaching services. We have options for everyone, regardless of whether or not you want to compete. Tap the link in the show notes below or head on over to our website, thebodybuildingdietitians.com to inquire now. There you go. Okay, so Jack, ready for this next question? Sure am. It says, what are your thoughts on photos versus skin folds in a bulking and a cutting phase? Wow, so yeah, quite a lot to unpack with this one as well. And I think that, let's start off with the bulking phase. I think that both can be useful. I think both are also relatively longer term comparison sources as well in a bulking phase because we have to think about the rate of muscle gain that is realistic and then sort of determine what is the rate at which that is going to be noticeable for photos and also for skin folds as well because I've done both and I've I th- starting off with skin folds I think that before I probably used to do them a little too frequently in a bulking phase and I think the amount of composition change that you need to notice fairly significant changes in skin folds is quite high. So if you're doing skin folds every single week or even every two weeks in a bulking phase, like I, I do question like how well it's going to reflect. I think maybe once a month or like even between bulking phases, like you might do two or three different measurements across a bulking phase. So like, let's say a bulking phase is six months, you might you might do it every two months and then you can compare it to the next bulking phase. Because mm. otherwise, like if you do it week after week, there's just gonna be some error thrown in there naturally because it's human error associated with the type of test that it is, unlike like a DEXA scan, for example and it's going to kind of muddy the waters Mm, yeah and sometimes you're gonna get results where you're like woohoo dropped in my skin folds or hey you know i gained a kilo but my skin folds are saying the same other times you can actually feel quite defeated because you're like what the heck you know my skin folds went up but i've been dieting like really hard Mm. for this past week and i don't get it you know i feel like i look so different i feel so different why does it say that my tricep thickness is thicker (laughs) I think the reality as well in a, in a bulking phase is your, your skin folds are just slowly going to go up. Mm. Like unless you're an, a newbie to training or for whatever reason you're having a, a rapid onset of muscle growth, like you're going to gain body fat. Mm. Like you're, <laughs> so, I, think, the- I think it's a combination of things. I, I don't think as a coach or even as a competitor or anyone involved in this industry who's trying to monitor body composition and really develop someone's physique for the stage, you can't just rely on one metric. You can't just rely on skin folds. You can't just rely on photos. You can't just rely on scale weight. You can't just rely on training. It has to be a combination of all of these different data points that help paint this really beautiful picture. Because I know there's there are quite a few coaches out there who primarily just rely on skin folds. And then that will dictate how much 
a client eats the following week. So if their skin folds didn't drop, all right, well, your macros are going to drop. <laughs> but hey, if your skin folds are dropping, then macros stay the same or yeah, you get a high carb day. Like you can't just rely simply on that metric. You have to combine, okay, your progress photos, it looks like you're getting leaner. We can see we've had half a kilo drop on the scale this week. And heck, yeah, you know, your sum of skin folds are down by two millimeters. Yeah, it looks like we're still in a deficit. We don't need to drop your calories further. The plan is working. Yeah. Yeah, I think that for, again, more acute periods, the scale, I would prefer the scale over mm. both skin folds and progress photos because mm. we sometimes just need to trust the process in that if we're training well, like both with good intensity and good accuracy and a, a good protocol overall, and we are gaining weight in a bulking phase that is going to equal muscle gain. Mm. And I guess progress photos and skin folds are just reinforcement of what you're doing is working. Mm. Um, but for, again, for me and, 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 my, and many of my clients, like I don't really ask any of my clients to get skin folds done or I don't ask them to get DEX scans done unless they want to. I do get progress photos, of course, for the clients who have more specific body composition goals. But even then, like for those clients that are gaining weight, there is a point I find with body fat for myself too, where there's not a huge amount of difference. Mm. Like it's, you, you reach that point, like whether it's, let's say like 16% body fat to throw a body fat number out there and they look bigger, but they, you can't really see the new muscle that's been growing underneath mm. until they cut back down. Um, the kind of the caveat to that is if they genuinely are growing a lot of muscle, then it's, then it's easier to see. But in this, most recent push-up myself, like, yeah, I, I can't really see the changes from mm. the last push-up phase mm. yet. So it'll, it'll have to wait until I do my next mini cut. I'd say if we were to make a hierarchy to say acute versus chronic measurements, almost imagine one of those triangles that you see, right? Like mm -hmm. the pyramids. Down the bottom, the most acute, the most important one would be monitoring scale weight. And you and I generally recommend hop on the scale every single morning after you go pee and see what your morning fasted body weight is and then take a weekly average and compare that weekly average between weeks, between months, etc. So scale weight's the most frequent and the most acute. After that, I would then hierarchy progress photos, taking progress photos at generally a rate of in the improvement season, anywhere between two to four weeks. But in prep, generally we ask for progress photos every single week. Heck, even sometimes more frequently if someone's doing high carb days or diet breaks or mock peak weeks, etc. But then after that, the most chronic, that's where I would say something like skin folds. Because I even remember being in, put in quite <laughs> uncomfortable positions when I worked at UQ Sport because people would literally hire me, well, hire me. They would pay me on a weekly basis to take their skin folds after you and I both got our ISAC accreditation because I was one of the only PTs at the gym, just like yourself, who could actually take legitimate skin folds. But they wanted these skin folds taken every single week. And you know, I'm a UD student. I'm not gonna say no to their money, but at the same time, I would take their skin folds to the best of my ability but sometimes they would get results that again, had them going, woohoo, I dropped skin folds or yes, they stayed the same, but my weight's going up. Other times and more often than not with females, they would actually feel quite defeated because 
female like i just there's something about the tricep and the thigh on a female where those two skin fold measurements are so damn iffy man like i can speak to that doing skin folds on other girls i can speak to that other people like yourself doing skin folds on me the tricep and the thigh <laughs> those two body parts and limbs they just have a mind of their own okay mm. that skin will do whatever the hell it wants and it usually ends up with a bruise too and you feeling quite defeated so it's like I'd rather just not, <laughs> but taking them on that frequent of a basis, it's just bouncing around. I think for skin folds, really gold standard is to have it be taken by someone who is qualified and also just very experienced with taking skin folds, but also on a more chronic basis and comparing those skin folds simply just to yourself. Like I know Joey, my coach, he's been taking my skin folds now for over three years since 2020, but we have a whole data set where we only take skin folds like every few months, but because since 2020 to now, I've always stayed within this kind of like 10 to 11 kilo bandwidth and taking skin folds across those years at very different points in my journey, you know, the improvement season when I'm deliberately gaining weight and trying to build more muscle, during mini cuts during the improvement season, across multiple preps. But because during that time, I've always been within this bandwidth of 10 to 11 kilos, we have so many different points where it's like, hey, you know, you've been 63 kilos three times now during the points that we've been taking skin folds. But every single time you've been 63 kilos, we can see that across a sum of nine, you know, your skin folds are actually lower and they're lower in these certain muscle groups. And it's like, well, that kind of makes sense because I've been going absolutely ham on my dips and my lunges and Bulgarians. That's pretty cool that I'm 63 kilos now, but my skin folds on my triceps and my quads, they're actually lower than they were back in 2020. Like it makes sense but it's over such a chronic time period. It's not every single week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I don't think too much changes in the in the cutting phase other than you can probably increase the frequency of those measurements and still get predictable data mm. and reliable data that actually shows change just because, again, the rate of fat loss is going to be much faster than the rate of muscle gain. So kind of like taking skin folds every week and let's say if you gained a kilo each week then you could predict that the skin folds would go up quite consistently mm. it's potentially the same or it is the same when dieting if you're losing a kilo a week or losing x amount of weight per week the skin fold should be decreasing each week mm. but that doesn't mean you need to take the skin folds each week like again I, I probably wouldn't i would wait a little bit longer so that the amount of change reflects on, on the metric that you're using. Yeah, and uh, you can confidently say, this isn't just human error. Yeah. This is highly likely legitimate body composition change. I think that just having those extra metrics of measuring, sometimes it provides people with reassurance though too. And I know working as online coaches, when you can't physically touch someone unless you actually travel to their show on actual show day throughout the entire prep, there's been so many times where you and I have never even met clients until their actual show day, which is really cool in itself. But at the same time, like you are just relying off these other metrics online. So generally just relying off progress photos and scale weigh-ins, but you can ask the client as well, like, Hey, you know, why don't you, you take some girth measurements or have someone else take some girth measurements for you or 
Sure. If there's, if you have a personal trainer who's qualified at your gym, who's offering to take your skin folds once every four weeks, sure. We can add that to our data set because sometimes it does provide that sort of reassurance. I think toward the tail end of a prep, because we both know you and I have experienced it ourselves, experienced with other clients too, where like the tail end of a prep, oh man, not too much keeps happening in terms of scale weight, but in terms of how the physique actually looks, that can dramatically change. So sometimes it provides clients with reassurance that, hey, look, you know, like scale, it's basically for these past three weeks been hovering within this like 500 gram bandwidth, but your progress photos look dramatically different. You're definitely looking leaner. Look, your girth measurements, your waist is a centimeter down. And from those skin folds as well, it says that you're down by three millimeters compared to last time across a sum of seven or a sum of nine, whatever it may be. So adding to the data set provides reassurance to say, okay, just because one metric isn't changing, oh, something is still changing. I'm still improving. Yeah, I think the final thing I'll add is when we reference skin folds, we're not referencing a body fat percentage that is derived from a skin fold mm. number, which often people want, but it's a bit of a shot in the dark with the accuracy of that. And again, for bodybuilding, it just doesn't really matter. And, and that's why I could take or leave skin folds because as per what you were saying at the end there, it doesn't really matter what someone's girth measurement is in the final weeks of prep. What matters is, is how they're looking. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. Plus, isn't it ironic that for body parts that males and females generally try to get very lean, like I know guys are all about those glute striations and girls are all about those tie-ins. I've never seen anyone or we were never taught to take a skin fold on the lower glutes. No. <laughs> or yeah, or, or a, a, a hip measurement like that. Again, it wouldn't, wouldn't really help because the amount well, of it might help a bikini maker when she needs your, yeah. <laughs> your hip <laughs> hip circumference mm. uh, that's just a joke <laughs> or the trunk the trunk makers right yes <laughs> uh yeah is there a question you would like us to answer on the podcast if so make sure to be following us on instagram at the bodybuilding dietitians where we release question polls on a regular basis as well Keep a lookout for our weekly informative posts on all things bodybuilding and nutrition, which are great references to save. And if you're a coach, share with your clients too. Well, there you go. That's our thoughts on skin folds versus progress photos. Cool. Yeah. Hopefully a enlightening discussion. So I think that'll pretty much wrap up for the main questions of this episode. And as per usual, we'll finish on a, another question, which is one thing that we learned this past week. Are you going first or me? You can. <laughs> okay. Well, I will take the honor of answering this question to say that I learned some things can be a little bit hit and miss and not everything that shines is truly gold. <laughs> so what I'm trying to reference is that I just got back from Japan this week and Japan has these really, really fancy toilets. They are top tier for urinating like legit you open up the door to a cubicle and the toilet lid raises up a song starts to come on and there's this little melody the toilet lights up with a color like blue there's a nice little spray something in japanese welcomes you into the cubicle and then you sit down and you have a very pleasurable experience sometimes <laughs> So if anyone's ever been to Japan, you know that they have these super 
fancy toilets that ultimately let you do the do in the nicest way possible. And they're very accommodating. <laughs> so when you sit down on this toilet, it will have a panel next to it. And this panel has a number of buttons. Luckily, the panel also has little drawings or symbols, would you say, as well as Japanese characters to describe what each button does but you can kind of get the gist from the drawing. You know, you've got a spray of water going up towards some butt cheeks. <laughs> you have some little symbols that are music notes because, hey, if you wanted some additional privacy while you're doing your thing, you can actually choose to play a little jingle jack <laughs> in the cubicle, which is always nice. <laughs> you can even spray perfume. Heck, you can even warm up the toilet seat. But the main two buttons are for the sprays, right? Do you want to spray the front or do you want to spray the back? So, you know, I, I, I had the full experience, right? I wasn't going to deny an opportunity to use a super fancy toilet while I was traveling overseas. So I was at the gym and I was going pee and afterward I chose not to wipe. And I was like, I'm going to ask this toilet to help me out here, right? What's it gonna be like? So I pressed one of the buttons, but you know what? Sometimes things truly are hit and miss. Whatever thing came out from under that toilet lid and started to spray, it missed me. And I'm telling you, I was in the correct position. I was there center. Oh yeah, I'm getting too lean. <laughs> Japanese toilet seats can't even locate me, man. I'm just missing. <laughs> no, I'm still big. At least my at least my glutes are still here, okay? I'm telling you. But this thing came out, it was supposed to spray me, but something berserk happened, and what happened is this water chute went through my legs, up into a little fountain stream, and then it started spraying all over the cubicle and all over my pants. And I jumped up, you know, this jingle was playing and everything, but I was just a Japanese nuisance, and I was like, ah! screaming in the bathroom while there's just like this hose going off from the toilet and it was spraying all over the cubicle all over my pants and I was just frantically trying to figure out how do I turn this thing off found the right button and uh yeah then I was there in a little bit of a wet mess and I'm gonna say it was pretty redundant because I was trying to get this toilet to help me out in terms of being nice and hygienic. Heck, there's even a option for after it cleans you to help it dry you. But there wasn't an option to say, well, now it looks like I've legitimately pissed myself. I had water all over my tights, <laughs> but there wasn't like an entire cubicle sort of dryer. So I now have a story to tell. I laughed, you know, I had to tell the staff members at the gym that, hey, one of those cubicles is um, quite drenched but it wasn't me, it was the toilet. <laughs> and then I went out into the sun and tried to dry my pants. <laughs> Would you use it again? I'm not gonna lie, the next toilet I went into, I gave it another shot and that one was cooperating. <laughs> I'm telling toilet you. Toilet or you? We both cooperated. <laughs> <laughs> but Japanese men, just like, they're next level with everything, right? Like really, they are well ahead of us, but I'm telling you, these Japanese public toilets, miles ahead of Australian public toilets. Mm, sounds like yeah. it. But yeah. I'm all for second chances, right? <laughs> yeah.
Looks like the second chance worked out. Yeah, it did. And the third and the fourth. Yeah, I go pee a lot. I'm still in prep. (laughs) But Jack, I'd love to know, what did you learn this past week? So I actually learned something about mosquitoes, of all things. And living at the beach and sort of as part of a wetland, uh, we do get our fair share of mosquitoes. And lately we've had a fair amount of rain, definitely more than had probably in the last six months or even 12 months and i think one thing that you learn quite quickly here is that rain equals mosquitoes and there's i didn't know that there was like this special type of mosquito that is around wetlands i think it's called like the sand mosquito or something along those lines but it's massive like we only saw it a few days ago when when it started raining more and ever since then there's been an amalgamation of them so they're big they're blood suckers yeah and they can uh they can i mean i think normal mosquitoes can too but these these mosquitoes seem to be even more adept at sort of sucking blood through pieces of clothing so yeah legit i've got bites on my butt cheeks because i'll just sit out on the deck wanting to enjoy a meal and i spray myself with that insect repellent but it it doesn't repel them these things man they'll get you they'll get you through your clothes yeah yeah something to watch out for just ensuring Usually we're safe on the beach because it's quite windy on the beach and mosquitoes aren't out there. But if we're in the garden or on the deck, um, it's it can get uncomfortable. So probably, yeah, I mean, the only downside really of, of living here, but I think we are probably going to get the house sprayed for mosquitoes, which mm. should help a little bit. I'm telling you, human evolution, why? <laughs> like, I, I get it, like, mosquitoes for a lot of other animals out there, they are something that they can eat, right? So they are a food source. But at the same time, like, why? Mm. <laughs> mosquitoes, like, and the fact that they bite you, steal your blood, and then it leaves, obviously, just this gruesome, like, mark and itch. It's like, could you at least take the blood and, like, just lo- not leave a mark and, like, leave a trace that you were there, too? Like, the fact that it itches so bad as well. And I know that I think I'm, in a sense, like, low-key allergic to them because I'll get a tiny little bite, but I'm one of those people that, like, it freaking swells up, like, the size of a dime. Mm. Yeah, I think the more you get bit, the I found that when we first moved here, I reacted them to them quite badly, but the more I more I get bit, the better I tolerate it. Mm, yeah, they're just gnarly. But mm. I, I feel bad for the dogs because like, I know we come back from the beach and the dogs are a bit wet and we can't let them in the house because they need to dry off. But these mosquitoes, they land on the back of their fur. And I'm really not sure if the dogs are getting bit or not because like they're not itching at themselves at all. You know, I can only imagine a mosquito would make a dog itch just like it makes us itch. Mm. But I'm not sure if they can actually get through Border Collie's fur. Yeah, me neither. I would think that the border collie fur would be thick enough to stop a mosquito compared to like a short haired dog. I hope so. Yeah. Even more reason to not shave your border collies this summer. Just, uh, just, just hose them down to cool them off. Okay. You don't need to remove their fur. Otherwise they'll probably get eaten alive by mosquitoes. Yeah. And sunburn. Yeah, exactly right. So keep them hairy. <laughs> Was that good for today's podcast? Yeah. I think that wraps us up. Thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed, you can, as always, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we'll catch everyone in the next episode.